Um, I was going to be reflecting on Acts chapter 2, the the chapter that was read or the passage that was read. We're going to back up a little bit. I got distracted by something earlier in the text, and that happens to me from time to time. But um, that's such a great picture, and we're going to look at it next week, of uh, people being together um, around uh, the word and sacrament around fellowship, and our retreat is um, like that on steroids. And so if you're kind of on the fence and saying, wait, wait am I going to go or not, um, would encourage you to go. Also want to say that um, if you're not able to go, but you can make a donation towards that, um, that would greatly help our budget um, and help things move along. So would put that before you. Let's go ahead and pray. Thank you. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would um, be with our fellowship as we gather this morning as we gather as a church around word and sacrament, and that you would bless us, that you would meet each person where they are, and that you would draw us closer to you. We pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Week before last, I got to visit the Kennedy Space Center in Cape Canaveral. Anyone been there before? Uh, I thought it would be mildly entertaining, but it was really out of this world. I mean, I was over the moon, totally blown away. Seriously, I was quite impressed. It was, um, if you ever get the chance to go, I would certainly encourage you to visit. Uh, One of the things I like was they really told the story of space travel in this country, and they captured the drama of it, and there is a lot of drama. It's a very compelling story uh, from the fear of the Russians and kind of going first and putting Sputnik up there and what's looking down on us to the lives lost in Apollo 1, Challenger, Columbia, but also to the successes, to the things that we didn't think we could do that we did like Apollo 8 and space shuttles like Columbia and the Atlantis and the Hubble telescope and the International Space Station. It's a great story, and they tell it well. Space travel in this country was a game changer. It caused us, both metaphorically and literally, to see life from a different perspective. It spurred our imagination to what is possible. Limitations that we thought existed, like, say, gravity, had been broken. And NASA is still telling the story of what they want to do next. Um, they, They mentioned in the tours that they... And I thought this was a joke, but I think they're serious. They want to go land on an asteroid. And, of course, they want to go to Mars. Well, as you're you're there, you're learning about all the different parts of it, but all of space travel and all those amazing things are made possible because of an explosion. That's what a rocket launch is. It's a controlled explosion. Someone compared it to sitting on top of a bomb. And the bomb hopefully explodes in a controlled way, and human beings are launched into outer space. Some of you have had the chance, I mentioned to it uh, last week, and some of you said, well, I was there for this launch or that launch, and you've seen a real launch up close at Cape Canaveral. The day before we went to Cape Canaveral, uh, we were 60 miles away in Orlando, but SpaceX, a private company, was launching an unmanned rocket into outer space, and we could see it from 60 miles away. It was just a little fiery like streak, but it was really, really cool to get to watch, and a couple of our kids were there watching as well. It's a really powerful thing to see this controlled bomb go off. But it's not an isolated event. It's actually the culmination of years of science and work and sacrifice, lives lost in order to get to that place. 
Today we are going to be in Acts chapter 2. And in this chapter, Luke, who's narrating this book, tells us what happens on the day of Pentecost and the aftermath of that. Pentecost was an explosion. It was an explosion of the power of the gospel into the world. And it broke limitations. It opened up new possibilities. It changed life as we knew it. But Pentecost, like a rocket launch, was not an isolated event. It was the culmination of something. Years of work, sacrifice, planning, and even the loss of life, death, made this gospel explosion possible. I have four Sundays left with you. And for these four Sundays, we're going to look into the book of Acts. Because in this book, we see how the Holy Spirit formed and launched the church, how it grew the church. We see the missionary side of things, of course, but we also see sort of the inner workings of the church, the kind of things that made it stable and healthy that allowed it to expand. But today we're going to start with what creates the church, with what launches it, which is the gospel. You see, a church without the gospel is like a rocket with no propulsion. It's just an empty structure. can't fulfill its purpose. The church was created by the gospel and continues to be propelled by that gospel. And in Acts chapter 2, we see that pattern very clearly. There was this mighty explosion of the Holy Spirit, and that's what we kind of know Pentecost for in Acts chapter 2. It was visible. There was fire. There was tongues of fire. There were the disciples praising God in a miraculous way because they were using languages they didn't even know so that all these people from different countries could hear. So there's this big visible thing, but then Peter gets up and he preaches. And in his sermon, he both proclaims and he explains the gospel. And then in response to his sermon, people come to faith and the church is formed. The gospel is the power that propels the church. Would you agree? What exactly is that gospel? That's one of the great questions of the Christian faith. And the answer is both simple and complex. It's simple enough for a child to understand, I am a sinner, I was lost, but Jesus loved me and forgave me. That's the gospel. That's a simple explanation that people can understand. But the gospel is also deep enough for lifelong scholars, for lifelong disciples to keep exploring like a subterraneous cavern that has no end. I continue to be amazed at the gospel, at its beauty, at its wisdom, at its coherence, at its expression of unfathomable love. So what is the gospel that propels the church? That's what we're going to think about today. Um, We're going to look a little bit in Peter's Pentecost sermon, pull in some other parts of the New Testament, and I want to look at the gospel in three ways. First is the embodiment of the gospel. Second is the announcement of the gospel. And third, the events of the gospel. So embodiment, announcement, events. First, the embodiment. In Acts 2, after quoting the prophet Joel, that's how Peter begins, because he's trying to explain these bizarre phenomenon of the Holy Spirit. After he quotes Joel, he then talks about the person of Jesus. 
Look at verse 22 if you have your Bibles. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man. That's how he begins. Jesus of Nazareth, a man. I use this word embodiment very intentionally. You see, what makes Christianity unique from every other religion, philosophy, or worldview is is that it is not primarily a religion, philosophy, or worldview. Christianity, at its core, is about a person, Jesus Christ. He is the embodiment of the gospel, the gospel in a body, in a real person. In John's gospel, in his prologue, Uh, with the famous verse, we love to read it, especially around Christmas, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The gospel is a person. It is God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. And just if we stayed with that alone, there is good news aplenty. That God became a human being, that is a grand miracle, as C.S. Lewis called it. The miracle that made every other miracle possible. And so we begin our explanation of the gospel by saying it is a person. It is Jesus Christ. He is the embodiment. And there's something in us that we we understand this. Because in our most desperate and painful moments, when we're discouraged and down, when our lives are even coming unraveled, we don't reach out for a worldview or a philosophy to comfort us. We need a person When we're standing by the graveside of a loved one, our hope is that a person like us went to the dead and overcame the dead and rose from the dead. It's hard to relate to a set of ideas, but a human being like us, we can understand. When we're struggling with sin or when we're facing persecution or suffering of some sort, our moral philosophy, our biblically informed worldview only goes so far. In those moments, we cling to a person, a person who was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin, but understands temptation, a person who faced persecution, a person who suffered in extreme ways, both physically and emotionally and spiritually. And then as we look ahead, at the end of time, in the new heavens and the new earth, it is a person, not a religion, that is going to wipe the tears from our eyes. There's a place, an important place, for good religious practice and liturgy. There's an important place for Christian philosophy and for a biblical worldview, absolutely, but they derive from knowing and loving and being loved by this person, Jesus Christ, the embodiment of the gospel. And so, friends, if the gospel is anything, it is therefore personal, because it is one person, you or me, relating to another person. Jesus Christ. I am a proud evangelical not because of how I vote and not because of the social issues I care about, but because I believe in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. He is the evangel embodied in a person, the good news. And the church is composed of people not who are religiously observing something, but that who have gotten personal with Jesus Christ, who know him love Him, who follow Him, who listen and worship Him. And we are such a church, King of Kings. We are a group of people who know and love Jesus personally. My prayer is that as you all go on into your future that you would 
continue to explore the depths of that personal relationship and that you would invite others to do the same who, who, who don't know what they're missing yet. So that's where we begin with the embodiment of the gospel in the person of Jesus Christ. But second, we have the announcement of the gospel. And Peter puts it like this in his sermon. He says, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. What's, Jesus, what's Peter doing here? He's looking back, right? He's looking back to the earthly ministry, those three years of Jesus, where Jesus went around Galilee and Jerusalem and other places preaching and teaching and performing miracles. Peter's not going to leave this part out because Jesus' earthly ministry wasn't just a prelude to the real show of the cross and resurrection. What Jesus said and did prior to his death and resurrection is core to the gospel. Peter uses this word attested. I'm using the word announced. But Jesus' earthly ministry, especially his miracles, was God attesting to something. It was demonstrating something of vital importance. Well, what was it? Peter doesn't use the phrase here, but we know from the Gospels that Jesus' earthly ministry was all about the kingdom of God. He was announcing the kingdom of God in his teaching and preaching. He was demonstrating something of the power and the nature of the kingdom of God in his miracles. The earliest preaching that we have in the New Testament is from Jesus himself, well, really John the Baptist, but Jesus himself, the one who is the gospel, preaching the gospel, listen to what he says. Mark chapter 1, verse 15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So the gospel is this good news. Why is it good news? Because the wait is over. The kingdom of God has, is at hand, it's come near, and we can respond to it. We can actually come under its benevolent reign. You see, in Christ, in all of those things that we have, especially in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we see God becoming king over the world again in Jesus, and he's announcing that. Yes, in some sense, God has always been king of the world. It's never been outside of his sovereign control, but for a time, God has allowed other powers to exert their dominance over his world and his people. That was the fateful consequence of Genesis chapter 3. When we disobeyed, we were in rebellion against the world's true king, God. And we put ourselves under other masters. And last week, Kyle talked to us about these other false rulers that we uh, become slaves to. In Jesus, God's kingdom is breaking in. He's becoming king of the world again. And he's rescuing people from these slave masters of Satan and sin and death. And he's bringing us into his kingdom of light and wholeness and peace and love. His kingdom is totally different than the kingdoms of this world, and that's what a lot of the teaching is about. It's a kingdom characterized by love and peace and mercy and justice. You see this in the Beatitudes and the whole Sermon on the Mount. That's like a treatise on what it's like to, to be and to live in God's kingdom. The parables are doing something similar. So his teaching and preaching ministry, Jesus' word ministry, if you will, it's announcing and teaching the kingdom of God. 
His miracles show us the kingdom of God. They show us its power. They show us its nature. In his book, Return of the King, which is part of the Lord of the Rings series, J.R.R. Tolkien describes what happens when the king comes to rule again. For a long time, the people of Gondor had lived without a king, and they had suffered in the shadow of the evil of Morador, which is this evil kingdom next door, if you haven't seen the movie or read the books. But when Aragorn, the true king, returns, he heals people. He heals people from the wounds they had gotten in battles and from evil. And the beautiful thing about it is it happens even before his enthronement, even before the final defeat of his enemies, Aragorn, the true king, slips into the city in disguise and he goes around healing people. And we're told he's fulfilling an old legend that the hands of the king are the hands of a healer, so shall the rightful king be known. Friends, Jesus of Nazareth came into Galilee announcing the kingdom of God and doing what? Healing people physically healing them, emotionally healing them, spiritually healing them. Why? Because he's the world's true king, and he's the one that brings healing and restoration and puts people back together again. Some of his other miracles were these powerful deliverances, that he delivered people from demons, from the power of the evil one. Again, these aren't neat magic tricks. These are demonstrating something of the sovereignty of God's kingdom. It's another kingdom breaking into the world, and it's clashing with the kingdoms that are present. But those kingdoms can't stand up to Jesus. And so what do they have to do? They have to flee at his words. They're signs. The miracles are signs. God's kingdom is here. God's kingdom is in the world. And this is what happens when it comes. People are healed. People are delivered. So the gospel is a person embodied, Jesus. The gospel is an announcement in word and deed that the kingdom of God is coming into this world. The king is returning to claim his throne. It's critical that we um, balance these two parts of the gospel, the, the personal part of the gospel, with this other part. Because if we only focus on the personal and individual part, we're, we're missing something of the gospel. The gospel is not just a personal relationship, it is also a public announcement. Let me say that again and write this one down if you're a note taker. It is not just a personal relationship, it is also a public announcement. And sometimes we've created this false dividing line between those two. The gospel is for individuals, but it's also for the whole world. It is all-encompassing. Nothing is outside of its scope. No person, no culture, no institution. The gospel is for all of life. Paul tells us in one of his letters that in Christ, God is reconciling all things to himself. And so we, we, we take this kingdom part and this personal part, and, and it helps balance the inward parts of the gospel with the outward parts of the gospel. So we have embodiment, we have announcement. Third, big way to look at the gospel are the events of the gospel. These are real historical events that actually happened in our world. They're not myth, they're not legend, they're history. Through these events, God was doing several things. He made Jesus the world's true king. We, we, the shorthand way of saying is Jesus is Lord. That means he's the world's true king. He's the Messiah. He forgave guilty sinners while himself remaining just, and he redeemed and created a people for himself that we call the church. 
The two main gospel events are the cross and the resurrection. And Peter will reference them both in his Pentecost sermon. Look at verse uh, 23 and following. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Peter is very clear. God didn't crucify Jesus. Lawless men crucified him. It was an evil, unjust act. But he's also very clear that it was part of the sovereign plan of God. Through this act of wickedness, of extreme human cruelty, God was working salvation. The cross is a gospel event. In the mystery of God, he used the unlawful death of an innocent man to justify guilty sinners. And furthermore, through the cross, God can forgive sinners and joyfully welcome them into his family, but also not compromise one bit of his holiness. He is just and the one who justifies. Paul works this out in his letter to the Romans. This is what I mean, how the gospel is both simple and complex. It's simple. Jesus loves me. I was a sinner. He forgives me. And yet it's also complex enough to understand all the depth and nuance of it. There is no end to its majesty. So you have the cross, gospel event, but it doesn't stand alone. You really cannot separate the cross from the resurrection. They're two very different things. They're separated by a few days, but they form really, I would say, one gospel event. And a way I like to picture this is with architecture. In Jerusalem, um, there is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. There's a few different sites. They think the, the cross and the resurrection may have happened. This is probably the real one. And inside this church, there's two main sites. One, controlled by the Roman Catholics, is where they think the cross would have been placed. And you can go up there and kneel at the foot of the cross. The other is where the empty tomb, and the Scriptures tells us they were close by. So there's these two different places, two different things, but they're under one church. It's all part of one event, as it were. So cross and resurrection. Peter seems to get this, that these two things uh, hang together. Uh, He understands that because Jesus is who he is, although his death was significant, he cannot be held by death. He's the Messiah. And he looks back at Psalm 16 and says, wait a minute, if we read Psalm 16 and know that David's talking about his Lord, then it says that God will not abandon his Holy One, to decay, to corruption, to death. And so it all makes sense. The light's coming on for Peter and for others. God had to raise Jesus up from the grave because he was who he was. So typically, we, we, we separate cross and resurrection. We think, oh, the cross was the defeat, the resurrection was the victory, but that's not true. The cross was the victory. The resurrection was God's stamp of approval on that victory. It was God's saying, this is my beloved son, the world's true king, and I fully accept his sacrifice for the sin of the world. So cross and resurrection together, historical events, gospel events by which we are saved. So what is this gospel that propels the church? person, Jesus Christ, embodiment. It is the announcement that the kingdom of God is broken into the world, it's changing everything, and it's the historical event of the cross and the resurrection, the mighty acts by which we were saved. You take all those together, 
They're not easily separated, really. You, you weave them together, and you have a pretty good understanding of the gospel. But, of course, there's more we could say about it. We haven't exhausted the topic. We can't exhaust the topic of the good news of God. We would have to talk about the Holy Spirit. I think we could call the Holy Spirit perhaps the gift of the gospel. As a result of all these things, the Holy Spirit is poured out. He enables us to believe it and to proclaim it and to live it. We would need to talk about the ascension, another gospel event sometimes overlooked. We would need to talk about the second coming of how the gospel will be consummated finally once and for all at the end of time. But I can't keep you here all day. And so we had to start somewhere. We have to have an understanding of the gospel because it is the power of God. It is the explosion that launches God's church on its mission in the world. Lose the gospel, the church is an empty structure. When you walk into the Kennedy Space Center, the first thing you walk into is called the Rocket Garden. And there's all these old rockets just standing up there. They're, they're neat, but they're just old relics. There's no fire in them. There's no fuel in them. Without the gospel, that's what the church is, just an empty relic. Really interesting architecture, really informative history, but no propulsion. We must hold on to the gospel, friends. We must be able to explain it clearly enough that a child can understand it, but never reduce it. Never lose wonder at its beauty and depth and majesty and never forget its power. And in Acts chapter 2, we see its power. After Peter finishes his sermon, something happened. Something miraculous. Something that God the Holy Spirit did then, does now, and will do until the end of time. He works faith in a person's heart and enables them to believe when the gospel is presented. Listen to how the people respond. Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what do we do? And Peter explains the steps of faith. There's repentance, there's baptism, there's receiving of forgiveness, there's receiving of the Holy Spirit. 3,000 people responded in faith that day because Peter was so eloquent, because the apostles had set up a fine institution with great programs. Of course not. Because the gospel was preached in the power of the Holy Spirit. And there was an explosion, a gospel explosion, and the church had liftoff. Let's pray.